If you're gay, then you're gay. You don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Steve Pride. And the holidays are upon us. How did that happen? I don't know. It happened so quickly. Oh my gosh. And it's going to happen again in like a month. Now, are you big on Thanksgiving? Because it's really not my favorite. No, I'm totally traumatized by it. See, how about you, Steve? I'm Native American, so it's really involved. Source subject. Sorry. Thanksgiving and the whole immigrant situation, the reaction to immigrants. When we, as a people, allowed immigration, much to our chagrin later. I am so mm. sorry. I raised the topic. Thank you. Wow. Tonight, yeah, moving on. speaking of, <laughs> we will talk to Jessica Stern, the executive director of Outright Action International. You might also know them by the name Eagle Herc. Eagle Herc. Eagle Herc, the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. And we are going to talk specifically about LGBT Syrian refugees and what you can do to make a difference. And then we're going to hear a classic tale of catch from Peter Dell. And we'll talk pink marines and Thanksgiving meals with Greg. Cope White, who is tremendously Renaissance man. Majorly accomplished, I Everything. think is what we call it. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm John Dyer V with News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending November 21st, 2015. Married gay and lesbian couples in Portugal will now be able to adopt children under a bill that passed in Parliament on November 20th. It builds on a law passed in 2013 that permitted same-gender couples to adopt their partner's children. The new legislation also allows lesbian couples to access medically-assisted fertility services. Activists celebrated the rights advance, especially since the bill to open civil marriage to lesbian and gay couples may have passed in 2010 only because it specifically banned those couples from adoption. Left-of-center parties in the current parliamentary majority, including the Socialist, Communist, and Left Bloc parties, each made adoptions equality an issue in last month's general elections campaign. The outgoing, equality-resistant, center-right coalition subsequently lost its parliamentary majority. The exact tally of the November 20th adoption's equality vote hadn't been announced by the time we recorded this newscast, but the Speaker of Portugal's Parliament confirmed to reporters that the legislation had passed. The country is currently in political limbo, with the left-wing opposition waiting to take power. 
Agence France Presse reports that President Anibal Cavaco Silva needs to decide whether or not to charge Socialist Party leader Antonio Costa with forming a new Portuguese government. Some have publicly wondered whether or not Costa's fragile leftist alliance can be sustained. Elsewhere, lawmakers in Kenya have rejected a bill to impose a death-by-stoning punishment for anyone convicted of engaging in private, consensual, adult, same-gender sex. The Justice and Legal Affairs Committee in the East African Nations Parliament refused for the second time in two years to allow the proposal to advance to the full chamber for debate. A committee spokesman told the media that its members think that the existing penalty of up to 14 years in prison is enough. Leading Kenyan LGBT rights activist Dennis Nzioka called the death of the bill a very good step, but told Star News that increased public discussion of the issue has fueled the homophobia that already festers in the country. We have seen a lot of anti-gay sentiment being brought out by people, politicians, religious leaders. People want to go the Ugandan way, Nigerian way. I thought Kenya was a safe country, the best in the continent apart from South Africa for gay rights, he said. But things have got out of our hands. It just shows how in an instant things can change dramatically. LGBT activists and their allies around the world marked the 16th annual Transgender Day of Remembrance on November 20th by honoring, in local memorials and celebrations of life and in online media, the 271 trans people who were reported murdered in the past year. According to Transgender Europe's Trans Murder Monitoring, this year's 271 murders is a significant increase from the 226 people reported killed last year because of their actual or perceived gender identity. The group says 85% of anti-trans murders are committed in the Americas. And many more homicides against trans people, mostly trans women and frequently trans women of color, go unreported. Activists fear that next year's numbers will be even worse, especially in the U.S., where transphobic no-men-in-women's-bathroom campaigns are the new wave of far-right fundamentalist attacks on sexual minorities. The Transgender Day of Remembrance began in 1998 in Massachusetts at a demonstration to mourn the brutal murder of Rita Hester, a transgender African-American woman. And finally, perennial far-right U.S. Republican presidential wannabe Mike Huckabee has learned that hell hath no fury like a survivor scorned. Guitarist Frankie Sullivan co-wrote the song Eye of the Tiger, the well-known theme from the Rocky movie franchise performed by his group, Survivor. He filed a lawsuit against the former Arkansas governor in an Illinois federal court this week, accusing Huckabee of violating the copyright of the song by allowing it to play when Huckabee escorted the now infamous Rowan County, Kentucky clerk, Kim Davis, onto the stage at a rally following her release from jail. A judge had put her there for refusing to do her government job, to issue valid marriage licenses to qualified heterosexual and same-gender couples. Eye of the Tiger blared from loudspeakers outside Carter County Detention Center as Huckabee and self-proclaimed born-again Christian Davis appeared on stage arm-in-arm after she was sprung from a five-day stint in lockup. The judge let her out after she satisfied him that she wouldn't interfere with her subordinates issuing marriage licenses to all qualified couples, regardless of sexual orientation. Sullivan previously sued former House Speaker and failed GOP presidential hopeful Newt Gingrich in 2012 for using the same song at several of his campaign rallies. 
Sullivan's new lawsuit is no real surprise. He expressed support for LGBT rights on the band's Facebook page soon after the rally and discussed that a song had been used without permission. No, we did not grant Kim Davis any rights to use my tune, The Eye of the Tiger. I would not grant her the rights, he wrote. Referencing a popular brand of toilet paper, he added that he would not grant her the rights to use Charmin. That's News Wrap for the week ending November 21st, 2015. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm John Dyer V. And you can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more news wrap on Stitcher Radio On Demand, on iTunes, or at thiswayout.org. In the wake of the ISIS attacks in Paris and Mali last week, we as a country are talking nonstop, it seems, about the Syrian refugee crisis. And I'm not so sure that we're necessarily talking the most accurate information about it. And we certainly haven't talked much about the LGBT refugees and their needs. So... We thought it was time to get our resident global LGBT rights rock star, Jessica Stern, to talk to us a little bit about her thoughts. You might know Jessica as the executive director of Eagle Herc, the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. They have just changed their name, however, to Outright Action International. And they are a non-governmental organization that addresses human rights violations. I got to talk to Jessica Stern, executive director this afternoon via Skype. Hi, Abby. It's Jessica. I'm very happy to talk with you today. Thank you so much for having me on. The situation for LGBTI people in the larger context of a refugee crisis is often overlooked. And of course, in the context of this absolutely unfathomable human crisis, which is affecting the Syrian people, it's understandable that we're not necessarily thinking about how particular groups are impacted. But actually, if you want to understand the ways that people are vulnerable and how you can help make them safe, you actually have to think about their identities and behaviors, which means that children don't experience the vulnerability of being a refugee in the same way adults do. It means that people with disabilities experience the challenges of being a refugee differently than those who are able-bodied. And those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or intersex are experiencing a lack of safety in a way that sets them apart from the broader refugee crisis. How so? Well, I think one of the first things to understand is that being a refugee is absolutely horrible for everybody, regardless of identity. And within that context of broader deprivation, one of the most important ways you can survive an imperfect and actually failed system is by turning to people that you know. But if the people from your own country don't necessarily want to share resources with you, if they are potential perpetrators of violence, then you can't depend on the traditional informal support systems that other refugees have access to. In the context of LGBTI people from Syria, we know that they're depending on other LGBTI Syrian refugees, but we're not talking about a community that's terribly well-resourced in the face of this crisis. That's really interesting. I really hadn't thought about the fact that refugees are often able to go with their families or their neighbors. Would that be correct? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, when you arrive in a country where you don't speak the language, then other people from your country are going to be incredibly important. It's very often that we see that a refugee crisis is profoundly gendered because who is actually able to escape but people who have freedom of mobility, people who are in possession of their own identity documents. We know that if you have savings, that you're in a better position to flee in the face of a crisis than someone who's been destitute all along. So for queer folks, it's particularly important to think about how gender and how location impact us, because we find that not only are lesbians and transgender people often those left behind, unable to flee, but then within the context of being a refugee, the mechanisms for financial survival are very limited for LGBTI people. And of course, sex work becomes one of the key forms of survival for so many. What are the particular threats that LGBTQ people are facing in places like Syria? Why are they refugees? Well, I always start by saying that anyone living under the domination of ISIS is unsafe. It doesn't matter who you are. But obviously, the things that make you unsafe vary depending on who you are. So ISIS has engaged in a systematic campaign of terror targeting anyone perceived to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or intersex, regardless of who they actually are, what they've actually done, and what evidence does or does not exist to substantiate the allegations of homosexuality or transgenderism. For the past several years, Outright has been working in a very deep partnership with an Iraqi-based organization working primarily on women's rights and also a U.S.-based women's human rights organization that is a longtime partner of the Iraqi group. And here I'm talking about the Organization for Women's Freedom in Iraq, which is based out of Baghdad, um, and the organization called Madre, based out of New York. So we started looking at the ways that LGBTI people were vulnerable to ISIS through the lens of those living in Iraq. And because of the increasing territorial control of ISIS. We expanded our data to include Syria as well. Based on the last time we updated our numbers, which was mid-September, we had documented over 30 killings in Iraq and Syria in 2015 alone, where ISIS claimed responsibility for killing people for allegedly engaging in acts of lot. So what we might, in a more vernacular way, say engaging in sodomy. And what we've documented, and you can find all of this on our website, outrightinternational.org, is that ISIS has systematically murdered people by pushing them off the rooftops of buildings, which unfortunately many of your listeners may have seen such images in the news, by stoning people to death, by shooting people. And more recently, we've been hearing stories from colleagues in Iraq and Syria that some ISIS agents have actually been tying weights around the neck of people they intend to execute for alleged homosexual acts so that they're sure that when they push them off the building, it will be their head that hits the ground first. Of course, this isn't limited to Syria. It's not limited to Iraq or even ISIS, I would imagine. Right. When we look at the vulnerabilities affecting LGBTI people around the world, we have to realize that the rise in militia violence makes LGBTI people particularly unsafe. 
a lot of people are particularly fixated on ISIS, and obviously for good reason, but for those of us that have been trying to work in solidarity with people in Iraq for a long time, what we know is that Iraqi militias were the primary perpetrators of violence against LGBTI people for many years, particularly in very serious and systematic attacks in 2009 and 2012. And in the face of kind of loss of control, the government of Iraq has actually turned to those very same militias to try to help them fight ISIS. So what we're seeing is that whether you're living under ISIS control or you're in some other part of Iraq or Syria where the government is ostensibly in control, the crisis is having a ripple effect that makes LGBTI people at all levels much more unsafe. From what you're talking about, it sounds like it's not over for them once they achieve a refugee status, once they even get into a camp or maybe even get into a country like ours. They are still facing real threats to their safety because of their status. Yeah, that's exactly right. The anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, anti-Muslim, anti-Iraqi, anti-Syrian hate speech that we've been hearing in the U.S. with increasing volume in recent weeks, recent months, has just shocked the conscience. Because instead of fixating on the few examples where there have been violent acts perpetrated by refugees, we should be looking at the overwhelming majority of refugees who are innocent people fleeing gross violence in their home countries and are looking for safety to rebuild their lives. And I'm aware that Representatives Paulus, Maloney, and Sinema, who are also among the leadership of the LGBT Equality Caucus, voted in support of what we'll call the House of Representatives Bill 4038. I refuse to call it by its public name. I'll say it for you, the American SAFE Act. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it is really about safety. I think it's really about hatred and fear. And for people on the American left that remember the environment after September 11th, we know that this country can turn against the people who are most vulnerable, people who are brown, people who are Muslim, people who speak with accents. And we just can't let that happen again. And the scale and scope of the refugee crisis is so tremendous that it is absolutely the responsibility of every one of us that cares about LGBTI people, that cares about human rights, that cares about justice, to make sure that this country is a place of refuge, a place of safety. And what we know is that the best response to violence and tolerance is peace, is education, is a totally different worldview a worldview that affirms human rights for everyone. And so I, I'd really like to see a different tone on the airwaves, the kind of tone that you're so beautifully creating on this radio show and throughout our country where refugees are really welcomed. And we not only accept a decent number of refugees in this country, but we actively encourage them to come here. Well, thank you for your kind words. I know a lot of our listeners are probably thinking, well, okay, I agree. This is terrible. I want to do something. I don't know what to do about the Syrian refugee crisis and this bill. What can you tell them? That's a really hard question because unless you are very committed to this issue, 
when you ask, what can I do? You generally mean, what can I do in a small amount of time? And I think it's really important to say, that's okay. You don't have to quit your job to make a difference. You don't have to move to Turkey and start working in a refugee camp to make a difference. But you should do something. And I know enough about the listeners of this show to know that there may be a healthy skepticism among some of your listeners about the impact of the congressional process. I want to say it is in moments like these, after the recent attacks that we've seen around the world, where members of Congress absolutely must hear from us to hear that we don't want to move into another era of increased state security apparatus and decreased welcome for those in crisis from around the world. So I would say, if you were ever going to call your member of Congress, if you were ever going to write to your congressperson, if you were ever going to sign a petition to someone in Congress, this is the moment. That is a really good point. It's very old school. You know, we're so used to doing it on social media. And I suppose you can do email, but I still think there's room for picking up the phone or writing a letter and signing it by hand because those letters do get read. I do know that. And then I want to make another point, which no one ever loves hearing, but is so important. People who care about refugees should make donations to support refugees. And that means two different categories. One It means direct material assistance, which we all know is absolutely essential because if you have to leave everything behind, you need material support to survive. But the second thing is people should be making donations to organizations that are advocating for the rights of refugees. You know, the refugee policy in this country is better than in many countries, but it's woefully inadequate by human rights standards. So any of your listeners that really care about these issues should do some research. They should go online. They should find out which refugee assistance organizations they're most comfortable with. And then they should write a nice check. Jessica, that's a great thought, especially as we're going into the holidays. Those kinds of things are also a nice thing to give as a gift instead of something else from Brookstone. Nothing against Brookstone. But I think that that's the best kind of giving that we can be doing right now. Here, here, Abby. Thanks so much for taking time. I know you've got a lot of work to do, and I really do hope that anytime anything comes up, you always think to give us a ring, and we'll happily have you on the air to share these insights with our listeners. It really means a lot to us. I'm a huge fan of yours, so thank you very much for this opportunity, and here's to being kindred spirits. That was the wonderful Jessica Stern, the executive director of Outright Action International. Google them. They're doing really amazing work. I love that interview. That was so terrific. I think we need to do more stuff like this. And you've got a fan. You've got a fan. Well, we're her fan. (laughs) And I've just been so angry over the reactions of like my conservative Christian, supposedly Christian, family and some friends from back in high school over the Syrian refugee. Those things about, well, you wouldn't leave your front door unlocked, so why would he unlock the door of the country? Well, we're not. That's the Confederate flag. Yeah. Ugh, crazy. Anyway, we are joined in studio by someone I really admire, even though he did not bring me food. Mm. Actor, I'm make it up. author, television writer, world traveler. Well, we're talking about Abby, but no, we're not talking about Abby. <laughs> we're talking about Greg Cope White. Thank you guys for having me. Also a bon vivant. And the author of the book, The Pink Marine. Yes, and Wenzel, you're a bon vivant. You're wearing a pink shirt today. No, can, Does that mean The I Pink Marine is you? I am the pink marine. I mean, you can Google a marine, and no matter what image comes up, mine is right next to it. 
And you are wearing fatigues and a pink shirt. I am. I'm always Googling Gay Marine. I just get porn from San Diego. Okay, Uh, now the the question that I have about Pink Marine is we are familiar with the story where you go into the Marines and then you find out you're gay and then you come out. But you knew you were gay and you went into the Marines. Please explain. My best friend called me after our freshman year of college and said that he was going to join the Marine Corps. He was going to Paris Island. Note that word, Paris. And spend the whole summer in boot camp and then finish in time for his sophomore year of college. And during that whole conversation, all I really heard was summer and camp. And I love camp. So I really didn't think about the military part. I didn't grow up in a military family. You did, Wenzel. So I didn't know what that meant. Um, And the more people during the couple of weeks before I shipped out that told me that I couldn't do it, the more I wanted to do it. And I didn't know that I was only going to get to wear green clothes. I didn't know that they were going to shave my head. I thought that I was kind of doing them a favor by going down. And then then I, I totally forgot that I was gay. And then I got uh, that contract handed to me with the question, are you, you a homosexual? How do you forget that at 19? I just didn't think it was a part of it. I, you know, I'm a lot of things. We're all, we're all, I'm left-handed. I'm, how many things were in my introduction? A lot. You know, I'm, I'm going to picture you now because you have great hair. Here. I know. They shaved your head? Thank you. They, yeah. Bitch, don't shave my head. <laughs> There's no guarantee of my age it's going to grow back. So I keep it big. You know, what I do, my plan now is I blow dry it every day just as big as I can. And then I let it settle through the day along with life's disappointments. You know, it kind of deflates. And yet, despite the fact you went into the Marines as a gay man, you did not have a thoroughly horrible time of it. I mean, you still utterly respect the Marines and the military as an institution. They didn't destroy you or... It was the best thing that happened to me. I love the Marine Corps. And, you know, I have many friends and I've met friends along this journey that were kicked out for, for being gay under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I'm, I'm horrified by, the, by those stories. That's not my story. I lied to get in. I cheated to get in. You, you know, you'll read in the, first, in the first few chapters, I failed the physical. So while I was pretty brave and able to lie on the contract about being gay, I had to lie to a Marine's face. Have a big, burly Marine that jumps off that poster, the few, the proud, the Marines, ask you if you're gay, and you're really not. Of course you're going to say, maybe, if it's a date, but it's not about a date. <laughs> you know, I lied about that. And so I did pass. I did have to cheat to get in. That Those three months of boot camp were really, really a lot of pressure because I was keeping that secret in. That's what was hard. The other guys were amazing. We need to take a break right now, unfortunately, but we'll be right back with Greg Cope. Do people need to send some money in? Is this a fundraiser? No, no, no. no, That's next week. Go ahead and give out your website for the book. Thepinkmarine.com. It's a really fun website. I've made a lot of videos with celebrities. And yeah, thepinkmarine.com. And we'll be right back with Greg Cope White because we want to talk some food thing because he is a foodie. Charlotte Cushman stars as Romeo coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Charlotte Cushman was among the most famous actresses of her time. Born in 1816 in Boston, she became quite the tomboy. The stage was set for a life filled with adventure. Getting her professional start in opera, Cushman decided to become an actress. She played a wide range of roles on the American and British stage, including male roles called britches parts, which were quite acceptable in 19th century theater. Cushman's stage performance as Romeo was lauded for its convincing passion for Juliet. She often received letters from female fans moved by her role as a woman's male lover. Of course, it helped that she could draw on personal experience. Her long-term lovers included novelist Matilda Hayes and sculptress Emma Stebbins. 
The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Ruth Perkinson. Hello, I'm Josh Thomas, and I have a TV show called Please Like Me, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK FM. 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Yeah! Welcome back. You are listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Steve Pride. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. That song coming out of break was Taylor Swift's Shake It Off. It's a parody of it, actually, called Shake and Bake, starring Danny Franzizi and Adrian Akondo. That was hard to say. And Chondo, I think Chondo? And Chondo. I'm so sorry, Danny. We do our best. (laughs) We are back talking to Greg Cope White. And as you've gathered from the song about Shake and Bake, he is not only the author of The Pink Marine, he is a food person. He has a show. You're like a... I'm on Cooking Channel's Unique Sweets, where I just eat the food. Mm. I want that you job. You also have a guest on another job. show on the Food Network. I did a show for Mark Burnett called uh, On the Menu. I competed with, uh, with what we should talk about at Thanksgiving. I used to part of a family recipe. Perfect. One of my favorite things to do is remember that, you know, even though our, some of our relatives aren't, with us any longer, mm-hmm. we can keep them with the recipes. You know, I think everybody has a favorite dish, right? Your your Thanksgiving dinner is probably already planned, and I would uh, hope to go to someone's house and eat what they made. <laughs> there's no shame in that. A restaurant, there's no shame in that. There's no shame in being a guest. There's responsibilities in being a guest. But when you're planning your menu, I hope that everybody's keeping a recipe that's passed down. Hmm. Well, now a question on the subject though: Is there a golden ratio between quirky family recipes and traditional? Because nobody wants to go to somebody else's house and find nine totally weird things that that family. You loves. want the sweet potatoes, is what right? You're right. We all require some of the basics. I mean, how many family menus can you fit in without it going overboard? It depends on who's having the party. If you're hosting the party and you've invited people and you haven't asked anyone to bring anything, you get to plan the whole thing, and they have to come, and they have to be good guests and shut up and eat it. If you have a food allergy or a dislike, you let the host know way before the event. When the RSVP is sent in, tell them you're allergic to nuts. Do not do that when you walk in the house. That's horrible. And also, don't bring, don't bring wine. Bring a bag of coffee. A great bag of coffee is great. The host has thought of wine. That's covered, uh, unless it's your family and you know they haven't bought wine. 
But also, uh, don't ever bring flowers to a party. That makes the host have to stop what they're doing, cut your flowers, find a vase, and they already have a plan for that. Well, see, I always worry the hostess didn't bring enough wine. That's your special worry ones, and we can talk about that later. <laughs> if you need to bring a little flask in your purse, that's fine. Or one of those boxes that. of wine. Yeah. Thank you. Well, and do you have views on drinking at Thanksgiving? Because sometimes it becomes an issue, <clears throat> I've heard. You mean like, do you want that drunk uncle corning you? She never loved you. That can happen. I would just, you have to pace yourself. Let's face it. Thanksgiving, you know, people have been working and cooking in the kitchen since 9 a.m. Those turkeys take a long time. And if you start drinking at the same time, it's just like snacking. You're going to, it's going to be a bad scene. So I would, I would be the responsible host too, and not just leave the liquor out unattended and, and have, and tell people just to make shots and you're in the kitchen basting that bird have a plan and don't call your guests there unless there's stuff for them to do for the four or five hours that you're in the kitchen. If you're, if they're, if they're there to watch a football game, somebody's in charge of the drinks and the snacks while you're in there whipping up the sweet potatoes with the marshmallows, which is an awesome dish, by the way. It is delicious. Now, now when you get the whole family there and it's time to talk, I I was just (coughs) reading in the Sunday times magazine that Thanksgiving is apparently the most popular day of the year to come out to your family. And they gave you a little how to, how do you feel about Thanksgiving as an arena for your own staging or coming out? Look, everybody needs to do it at their own time. That's a really sensitive time. So I'm definitely, if you have, if that gives you the bravery to come out to those people, I, I'm personally not a fan of stealing the show. I love the comedian Bob Smith, his classic line at Thanksgiving, you know, when he came out, passed the mashed potatoes to a homosexual. His mom passed him to his dad, so that was a bigger problem. You do have to be ready for the drama that's going to ensue. If you feel it's a safe time and it's a convenient time, do it. But we don't, you know, it is about something else. But please, to thine own self be true. And if the timing's right, come out. Everybody, if you are coming out at Thanksgiving, should you bring something stronger than just wine? Bourbon. Thank you. Flat out bourbon. Is that the coming out drink? It is. It's just going to let them know. You're going to go to Bourbon Street. It's all about, yeah, there's going to be some things happening. Well, and Thanksgiving, you could break it down because I always ended up in the kitchen with the women doing the dishes. So you could start there. So did I. Then work your way to the football game. Know your audience. Exactly. You know, and then you're in there with those women. They're sympathetic. And, you know, you've helped them. Well, and frankly, the living room full of men, you could just go in and say I'm gay and they'd turn around and go, please go get me a beer. Because they're not paying attention to anything at that point. I like your plan. We're going to go with, if that should be, would you send a letter in to the op-ed? Thank you. Okay, now listen, these are the burning questions in our household every year. The turkey, brining, yes or no? Brining is great. But the one thing I don't want you to do, unless you're single and want to meet a hunky fireman, don't deep fry your turkey. Don't set up that huge vat of oil under the porch Have and you done deep that? fry turkey. No, but oh. I've been to it and it always looks scary. I've seen it done. And it's a first off, that's a lot of oil to waste. Let's think about our planet and where that oil is going to go. Nobody needs any of that. Just roast the turkey. Uh, yes, brining is great. I, overnight, a couple of days, just let it soak. And do you turkey have a favorite, just a basic brine, or do you go for like the the? I use a brines? lot of peppercorns and a lot of salt. Super basic. Oh, we should probably explain what brining is. Yeah. What, yeah we, I you, was sitting here <laughs> having <laughs> lesbian anxiety gonna, about this. Yeah. Soak the turkey in in a liquid that's going to soak up some flavor and hopefully get it a little more tender. You can put a little apple cider vinegar in there, anything that's just going to get in there. There's so many great brines. Well, and the great thing is that it keeps the moist uh, the moisture in the meat, so you get the breast is moist and the legs are moist. And we, we love brining. Okay, the other one? Kosher salt. Kosher salt. 
basting. Some people are obsessed with basting, and some of us don't want to think about the turkey once the door is shut. I think you can save a lot of time if you put your turkey in breast side down, and that way the the dark meat juices sort of do drain through and and lower themselves to the heavier part of the bird, the breast. Let's be careful because we talked about Abby's breasts last week, and we got all sorts of calls. Yeah, we did. Yes, we did. Call in. Let's <laughs> keep talking about breasts. Complaining about <laughs> this, them. This breast awareness month. So it, roast the turkey. Breast side down, and then the last 45 minutes, flip it over and then baste. And baste with butter. I like to rub my entire bird with butter. Now, we maybe think you maybe think we're taking a left turn off the show here, but yeah, rub the entire turkey with butter, and that will roast and turn into a beautiful golden color already. And then once you flip the bird over, then start basting it, and it'll get that great color that you want, that lacquer finish, that color that I love to get when I'm in the south of France. May, I, may I ask an etiquette question that might go, you might have already answered this, but this actually came up. I have been invited to bring a side dish to a Thanksgiving, and rather than sweet potatoes or whatever, I wanted to bring roast butternut squash, which I like, which is really good, and I think it's a good substitute. My partner said, absolutely not. That's like competing with the squash. It's not a good substitute. Don't bring it. Like, bring something else entirely. It's not a substitute. It's You're bringing it as an addition to. And okay. first off, you were invited to bring a dish. Yes. You get to bring whatever you want. I would recommend zhuzhing it up a little bit. Make oh, yeah. sure there's nutmeg in it. Oh, you it's good. You might stir some pumpkin seeds in for some crunch Ooh, nice and some idea. texture, mm-hmm. you know, during that bite. I'm a huge fan of butternut squash. Okay. Yeah, you, you get to do what you want. All right. I'm going to take, actually, I, I've been thinking about taking something, even though I don't cook, but I saw this great recipe where you can make circles of a watermelon, and you can, well, I think that was your recipe. Oh, I did that. <laughs> yes, I did that for, on a Food Network pilot. Yes, so here's a great recipe, and this is great. Talk, Wenzel, this might be your lubricant for getting the news out. <laughs> My what? What you want to do he is you take a disc of watermelon, use a cookie cutter, and slice the watermelon first into a big disc, and then use a cookie cutter to cut out shapes of the watermelon, and then soak them in rum. Just put them in a big, lay the discs in a casserole like poker chips, and then just dump rum on them. The watermelon will soak it up, and then put a slice of goat cheese on top of that, and then some fresh mint. It's a goaty mojito. It sounds delicious. And even I could do that. Yeah, you can do it. That's a great dish to bring. Mm, add, Add the basil at the end after you get there because it tends to turn brown. That might solve my squash problem. Now, this holiday always <laughs> makes both. me think of Susan Stamberg of NPR, and she would always give at this time of year Mama Stamberg's cranberry relish recipe, which sounded vile, but it was something her family insisted on. Do you have one of those weird recipes I that you do. can't do without? My grandmother uh, was an amazing cook. She was also really glamorous, and she had these perfect long red fingernails. And at Thanksgiving, I used to love watching those fingernails disappear into kneading things and into big vats of food as she would cook. And yes, her dressing. Some people call it stuffing. We do it dressing. I, I'm not a big fan of stuffing. There's some safety issues there. So we make the dressing in a separate casserole dish. And you you start with cornbread and you use a lot of fresh celery, a lot of fresh onions, a ton of fresh sage. And then you let that sit overnight, just those dry ingredients with the vegetables. And then you pour in about, depending on if there's ratios involved here, this isn't the recipe, but you pour in chicken broth and about a dozen eggs and you whip it up. And then when you bake it, it puffs into a little bit of a souffle. That sounds great. All that sage. Cornbread. That's That marks you as a southerner. I know. I'm texting. Now, <laughs> the holidays, you can always come up with a Christmas horror story, but so few people want to share Thanksgiving horror stories. But I'm always hoping people have one because, to me, it's prime territory. 
I, I was at a Thanksgiving dinner just two years ago, and a friend's dog did come up and steal the bird off the table. We were gathering. We were on our way. And you know when something falls, and you know it's going to fall, and you know it's falling, and you can't do anything, and you know it's just going to break? It was that. We were all just walking to the table, and this huge dog got on the table, took the bird, and there was nothing we could do. He had a great Thanksgiving. <laughs> we had to order pizza. Well, now, to almost to get back to the Pink Marine, because I grew up in the military, one of my favorite Thanksgivings was going to the mess hall because there was a huge selection of food and nobody had to clean up the mess. What was it Somebody like? had to clean it up. I've been in that in Well, that that's true. You, it's hellish. Yes. But, but now when you were in the military, what was it like to go through Thanksgiving? Because you have a an appreciation for food and a skill with it that I've never had. So I was I always able it. to go home during those holiday periods. But I will say that's a great, important thing, not just military, but everybody with social media nowadays. Make sure that everybody's OK in your circle. And if you have an extra chair at your at your table, please invite somebody over. I know there's tons of programs to send old cell phones and minutes and miles to veterans. Yes, do that. But also look at your own social media circle. Who on your Facebook page just got divorced or just lost their mom? Make sure that they've got a place. And if you've got a place in your life for them, invite them over and, and just and really reach out. I'm a big fan of working in, in soup kitchens and homeless shelters, but not just on Thanksgiving. They need you in March and they need you in August. So don't just do it on Thanksgiving Day. Find another day to do that. I love doing it in the middle of the summer because that's a cold. Well, now to flip that thing about bringing people in, somebody I know on Facebook today put it out there that she had no place to go. How do you feel about that? Because to me, I thought, I get what you're doing, but it just seems so tricky. Well, before we went live, weren't we talking about how glossy people make their Facebook lives look? They're, you know, oh, hi, I'm in I'm in France today. They're covering up the hell that is. Yeah. <laughs> I applaud her for if she if she doesn't have a pattern of neediness, you know, I applaud her for putting that out there. And I hope that somebody invited her to come over. And make her do the dishes just in case. Oh, yeah. If she would offer to do the dishes, that would be exactly the And maybe she'll come out. Uh, I can only deal with so much at one meal. Is there anything about Thanksgiving you'd like to mention that we haven't covered? I would just like to say that everybody just be grateful. If you're bitching about cooking and you're bitching about having people over, you're at the wrong event. Go out to a restaurant. Be thankful that we can do this. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us this Thanksgiving. And uh, thank don't you. forget to go check out his book, The Pink Marine, at thepinkmarine.com. And don't you've got and a blog site, website. too. I have my blog, Eat Greg Eat, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook is all Eat Greg Eat. I do have a pretty active blog, Watch Unique Sweets. But, yes, please go to pinkmarine.com. And all your favorite booksellers are there, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Indie Books. A books. I love A books. You can all find it there. Thank well, you. We're going to take a quick moment to revisit one of my favorite pieces of all time. It's done by the great Peter Dell, who now lives up in San Francisco, and it won bucket loads of awards. It was called Catch. For my brother and me, playing catch became an escape very early in life. The dead-end road in front of our house became a bullpen one day and an end zone the next. My brother and I played catch so much because our parents fought. Graham and I sat and listened through the walls. I sided with my mom's overly emotional pleas while my brother found my dad's logic more compelling. We found that if we went outside, we didn't hear their arguments. We also liked playing catch because it provided a way to talk about intimate things without being intimate. We didn't have to look directly into each other's eyes. Tossing a ball around made us both feel like men in the most macho, stereotypical way. 
he tossed me a knuckleball. Are they fighting about money again, I asked. They never fight about anything else, he answered, as I tossed him the ball back. I heard him say that we may not have enough money to pay for the broken water heater. Fastball, high and to the left. Ball one, I added. Same thing happened last month, too, when the car broke down. My brother windmilled his arm to loosen it up more. Is that why Daddy had water instead of dinner the other night at Joe's Cafe? Yep. As the older brother, he always knew better than I did what was going on with my family. When I finally came out to Graham, it wasn't a coincidence that we were playing a game. A video game this time. Graham, there's something I want to tell you. He shot at my alien, missing. Yeah? he asked. I'm gay. I fired on him this time, trying to capture his enemy base. The seconds ticked down on the clock. Are you serious? My shot went wide. His turn to fire back. Yeah, that's the real reason Christine and I broke up. He carefully aimed. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I mean, thanks for telling me. I really like knowing about your life. He scored a thousand points. The game paused and we were forced to look at each other. I just wanted to tell you before you found out from someone else. I haven't told mommy and daddy yet. I wanted to talk to you first to see what you thought. I'd wait a while to tell them. There's too much going on in the house right now with both of us going off to school. This past Christmas, my brother flew in from Chicago to be with us in our Southern California home. We don't see each other often anymore because 2,000 miles separate us. He's a flight instructor now on its way to becoming an airline pilot. My brother now plays on volleyball and softball teams in his neighborhood. He enjoys learning the sport, whatever it might be, and he still plays better than most people on his team. We played catch again for the first time in years. My parents don't fight very much anymore. They seem beyond that now. This time we played catch to have fun. We talked about his wife and my boyfriend and what our plans were. He sent me deep for a fly ball. I caught it over the shoulder, something I had tried for years to master. My brother imitated the roar of a crowd as I made my victory dance in the imagined right field warning track. Even though I had been with my family for a week, I felt for the first time like I was home. Well, I'm glad you brought that back, Steve, because I don't think I've ever heard it before. And that was delightful. And I am also very moved by Greg's suggestion that we bring somebody to Thanksgiving that maybe we thought already had a date. I don't know. Last year, my friend Denise, who I go with her every Thanksgiving to the same couple's house, she invited a friend she hadn't seen in a long time. And he showed up like kind of a little snackered and with women. <laughs> He brought, he brought guests. Well, yeah. 
The sometimes guests would guess. That's another thing entirely. Panicked. Yeah, that's a whole issue. And not to name drop, but is this your Thanksgiving where Amy Hill shows up once in a while? Oh, no, that was years ago. Oh, was okay. Like Thanksgiving in her house, and she saved a seat next to me, and it turned up with one of the guys from Six Feet Under. I thought that was a little sweet. Oh. The black cop. Oh, my. So it's like, oh, so it's like, oh celebrity. And yeah, I, was, I was still young and like so starstruck. Oh, you had hope then. I remember that. Ah, oh, celebrity Thanksgivings. Yeah. That sounds like fun. Someone knocking on the door? No. Weird. No, it's just us. He's chuckling. Saying goodbye. Well, that, well goodbye. <laughs> That's the end of our ride. Gather your personal courage. Take Tim and Politicos by the hand and exit to the far left of the tram's forward motion. And our special thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, our coordinating producer, our own Steve Pride, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Jed Proctor and, and Matthew Brian McGoffin Burns. Was in there tonight. Yes, he oh, was. Oh, Maddie came by very quickly. Our Maddie. And follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted by noon every Wednesday. And while you're there, give us a like, because I get Facebook reports every week. Are we Sunday. almost at 1,000? Almost. Oh, come on. Get us to a 1,000, friends. Like us. Really, really like us. <laughs> you I can know. do it. All right. Well, coming up next is Flip the Script with Rico Matsuda. We'll close with a song that's very dear to my heart. As my great, 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 great grandmother walked the trail of tears, I always question my role in Thanksgiving, and no song says it better than Stole My Land. Happy Thanksgiving. This grudge can't last forever Stole my land So eat some turkey while it's still warm Stole my land Cause I've been here a while and you've been here a while And together we can live in peace So let's forget the past and all have a laugh While I chop down the rest of your trees You stole my land Greedy evil man You said Stuffing and cranberries inside Stole my land We'll share this smorgasbord together Stole my land I bet we both like pumpkin pie no. You came to the west with your germs and your death Brutalizing every woman and man Killed everyone in sight Cause you thought it's alright Now you're doing the same to this land You stole Dwell on the past and we can fight now Or we can shake hands and be friends right now You can talk about the cause of your plight now Or sit down next to me and have a bite now We would have told you but you killed us, we're gone now That what you're doing to this land, it won't be long now 